0: Hello everybody, this is Kevin Witham, and welcome to season two of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone-Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one, so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Common Grounds Unity podcast, where our purpose is to have dialogue and discussions with people across the streams of the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. We're seeking in part to be an answer to Jesus's prayer for unity in John 17. We're currently in a series focused on spiritual formation and its relationship to unity. And last week, uh, we started this conversation with Dr. Tim Robinson and Dr. Casey Tigret. And as we looked at where we wanted to go with the conversation, we're gonna kind of veer off a little bit because last week opened up a lot of interesting dimensions to spiritual formation that we just want to follow um I think it demonstrates how how broad and how deep and um and how attentive that we should be to this conversation and let it move how the spirit directs. So we are happy to have Tim and Casey back with us if you want to know all about their amazing qualifications and uh, the reason why we invited them. You can listen to last week's podcast and I gave a humongous bio for each of them and um, I'm excited for you all to get to know them through these discussions. So let's just start this conversation with... um, what, what do you all think the challenges are of making room for God in our present culture? I like to start out with easy questions, fellas.
2: Mm. It's, just, you, it's consistent. Uh-huh, You're so <laughs> consistent, Tina. I, I think the starting point for me is I think we have to begin thinking about making room for God in culture, not as a war. Um, too often we see it as a battle. There's a, there is a need to uh, overcome and impress and press down, in order to make room for God in culture. Um, and I know there are different views on God's presence in culture, but I, I also know there's this sense that that God is in and through all things, and so the idea of a war um, of fighting is I don't think it's nearly as compelling as God inviting us to find him in the midst of the things that are going on. And so that for me, that's where it starts is I'm not trying to import something that isn't already there. Uh, my family and I, we were in, we were in Maine, uh, over the Memorial day holiday, and we were able to go to Acadia national forest and we were on, uh Cadillac Mountain, hmm. the highest point on the eastern seaboard. And there's just this, it's just a place. It's it's older than us and there's it's rock and it's trees and it's water. But there's this sense that God meets us in these places where all I did was get on a plane and take a rental car and showed up. But there's something about that place that God, has, God was there before me and already there. Now I get that culture is a different thing. Culture is something that is either rises naturally from us just being in a place at the same time or it's something we create in order to make sense and or something we create in order to make sense of the world. So finding space in culture, I think, is is really about having the conversations and being able to pay attention long enough to discover where God is already present. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, if we go back to the formation conversation, silence is such a powerful thing um because it enables us to pay attention and not just hear but listen and really really notice where god is active already in the midst we're not fighting to import something that isn't there we're we're just fighting we're actually doing a bit of fighting to listen and to hear to hear what god is up to and to see god where god is already active so for me part of making space is just being able to pay attention and to notice and to slow down uh some of that has to do with schedule some of that has to do with technology you know i I'm, I'm, i have my phone nearby because who knows what might happen uh knowing that there was a generation who if something happened they'd just find out about it later and um that that's just how that worked so uh, yeah so that that's one of the challenges is there's enough distraction right now um, both good, bad, and otherwise. And some of it seems very noble. Uh, There are noble distractions that are actually just as dangerous as the ignoble distractions, I suppose.
3: Um, You know, I think that uh, Thomas Merton's analysis of Western culture in the 1950s and 1960s is as applicable today as it was in his day, which he identified The greed and materialism, the violence, uh, the nationalism, especially of, of the West that had infused itself into Christian identity was a key barrier to accessing what he called the true self, the self that is rooted, founded, originated in Christ, that dwells in God and God in it at the deepest Uh, dimension of the self. And that these, you know, these realities or these uh, forces have built up these layers of facade uh, that he called the false self. And, you know, if you're asking about what prevents us from noticing where God is and what God is up to today, um, I I think it's, it's sort of At least in North America and in the in the Western uh, Christian world, uh, this conflation of nationalism and individualism, violence and materialism, and the pursuit of wealth and the commodification of the self—you know—that's the most monstrous ideologies to me that exist today. Is the 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 way that we teach people, young people especially, that they are commodities, that they need to brand themselves and present themselves to the world for consumption. I think these are significant barriers to noticing where God is at work in the world today. Uh, The confusion in our political discourse over, the, the, the conflation in our political discourse of God's will uh, of Christian faith with uh, a host of violent and uh, materialistic and consumeristic uh, initiatives. So those, to me, are, are, are alive today as, as much as they were in Merton's day, if not more so.
1: Casey, you mentioned something about um, silence and trying to listen. How does silence and solitude simplicity to speak to kind of what you were just saying, Tim, how how do those things factor into this discussion? I,
2: I think they become the starting point for the posture we take towards the world that we're in. And what I mean by that is we approach, just as Tim said, we approach life with this operating system that's running in the background. If our students have been told that they're, commodities to be presented and consumed that's how they approach everything so and and I just want to c- connect to that for a second like there shouldn't be a whole lot of shock around why our relational landscape is so so damaged mm. when the choice is really there between a commodified person seeking a relationship with another commodified person or all of us living on posts, likes, and retweets. There, the, you know, the, that posture just doesn't have a whole lot of substance to it. Uh, but with things like silence and solitude, uh, and some of the other spiritual disciplines, fasting as well, it 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 removes from us this this driving anxiety to take, achieve, conquer, consume, because it puts us in a place where we don't need those things. Um. To, to take extended periods of silence means you have to become comfortable with the voices from within. And some of them are the spirit reminding us of who we are. Some of them are the inner critic saying, ah, but that's not true. Um, we're back at the tree in the garden. Did he really say that? God didn't really say that you were created in his image, did he? Of course not. Uh, so, so it puts us in that spot where we have to filter between those. And, and for us, I think the noise or the sound that we surround ourselves with, are it's kind of our way of managing our world. So being well-spoken is a way of managing, sometimes managing people's impressions of us. So silence takes away our ability to manage the, other people's perceptions, and it just tears stuff away. And it's just us at our raw and simplest uh, solitude does the same thing. And I love, Henry Nellan has a great uh, distinction between solitude and loneliness. Solitude is setting ourselves apart for the, for the purpose of learning to live without the accolades and presence of others. Loneliness is this forced uh, state of being away from other people, and it's to an unhealthy extent. And so I, I think there's something about solitude where we can disconnect from others step away and just reconnect with God where that gives us the ability to surrender some of the things some of the metrics that other people say are successful and i think this is the great lesson we learn from all of the my one of my mentors jk jones calls them the old dead guys this and dead guys and gals i should say uh, this is what we learn from the desert fathers and mothers is that they were the ones who who pulled away from all the the, the noise and the sound and the accolades and the communities formed their own community. But they were also the ones that because of that, they were able to most succinctly and most wisely address the social injustices that were happening. Because since they were able to pull themselves out of it, they were able to see things very clearly. And, and any of the uh, any, any figure that has done Spiritually centered justice work has been a person who understands what it's like to be in silence and solitude in one way or another. They've discovered the value of stepping away from the noise and the activity and the flurry and really do what Jesus did in Luke 5, where in the midst of a giant crowd of people who all needed healing, he stepped away to a quiet place and prayed. There was this need to step out of it. In order to recover and recalibrate and see things clearly, and so that's that's one of the things that I think helps us to re-enter culture, re-enter our families, our work, uh, re-enter our work with our own addictions, uh, re-enter the church. Uh, I think churches need people who are stepping into silence and solitude on a regular basis, who will be able to come back and say, "Here's some of the things we need to think about." um, eldership and leadership teams who don't have a practiced rhythm of silence and solitude. Um, I don't know how you make decisions that are healthy and wise without something like that on your calendar on a regularly occurring basis.
3: Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with, uh, well said, Casey, uh, I agree with all of that. It, I'm just, the only thing I would add a couple of points building on uh, our conversation in the last question uh, mode, is that uh, silence and solitude is not productive. So it, it does resist. Uh, you, th- you mentioned Sabbath, I believe, last week as a, as a practice, a modeling practice that uh, you know, clergy to model before their congregations. Uh, that's not productive. Right? And so that economic system that I uh, mentioned earlier as a as a barrier to formation into the image of Christ uh, says that uh, everything has to it it commodifies everything. That's what you know commodification is. It's like everything is for sale, and that's the economic uh, system in which we live. And every individual is responsible only for their own productivity, uh, by which their worth is measured, and if you're not producing, then you have no worth. You have no value. You have nothing to, to offer. There is no exchange uh, that you can uh, be a part of. And, and therefore, you have no self uh, in, in the, the eyes of that system. Um, silence and solitude is uh, countercultural in that way, in that it resists that impetus toward commodifying our time, our bodies, our labor, uh, et cetera. So it's a way of stepping out of that system in order to, um, uh, as Casey said, in order to discern well what it is that we are being called to in this moment. The other thing is that silence is uncomfortable. And especially, we're not a culture that really is comfortable with silence in any way. Next time you're in a conversation that hits a lull, just notice. You know, try to try to notice how long it goes before somebody, you know, says something, you know, just says something uh, to to move the conversation along, to get it moving, to get it going, to or even in a classroom when a question is asked and there's no answer within a few seconds, you know, we're, the. Nervous, the, the silence is nervous. The teacher wants to, you know, to fill in the blanks um, to, to move it along. So it's uncomfortable, but it also creates space for a lot of uncomfortable noticings about self, about how self participates in uh, the systems of uh, violence, oppression, greed, materialism, etc. And that I, you know, that's another barrier. I believe that. That, uh, that we have right now is a, this discomfort with uncomfortable truth and, and uncomfortable feelings. And I think, especially in privileged communities, that part of the work of soul guides and spiritual uh, formation people is to offer majority dominant culture people, um, uh, it, to invite them into sitting with those things that make us uncomfortable. Uh, to connect it to, to you know some other uh, conversations we were having earlier, uh, discomfort around racial injustice and its history in this country, discomfort around uh, the way that uh, around gender, and uh, the way that uh, uh, you know we have a history of laws that have uh, excluded uh, women from leadership or from uh, certain civil rights. Uh, we, You know, people are not comfortable uh, wrestling with those things. And so we push them away. And that's showing up all over the place now. And so, uh, you know, being able to sit with those things and begin to discern them. That, uh, I mentioned Ignatian discernment last in the, the last podcast. Uh, and one of the dynamics of Ignatian discernment is sorting through feelings of consolation and desolation, Ignatius uh, called them feelings of desolation those feelings that are shadowy and seem to come from a place of you know from from a from a place of despair or a place of evil or whatever uh, whatever term you want to use but uh, sometimes they're not coming from that place sometimes those feelings of desolation are coming from the holy spirit says ignatius trying to uh, inform us about something that might be wrong in our lives, in the world, et cetera, and inviting us to uh, deal with those those things. So um, that's what's that's a a real place of that silence and solitude. Uh, although it's it uh, can be uncomfortable, it's it's a really important uh, place to go in this uh, in this time.
1: Yeah, you both touched on like when we. Experience silence and solitude, and how then in examples you both gave on how that helps us engage the world around us. So, I'm just gonna let this last question kind of take up the rest of our time and just delve into this a little bit. How does the way we're formed show up in how we engage the world? Like, where is that intersection of the work that we do internally and how it is expressed in love of God and love of neighbor? What would you guys say to that?
2: Well, uh, I like to go back to the word disciplines and specifically Dallas Willard, the way he frames disciplines are as a method of training. And so the time that we spend in silence and solitude with this time that we spend worshiping with other people, all of the practices that we do are really training us. Scripture trains the way that we think and see the world. Silence trains the way we relate to our words. Solitude trains the way we relate to others. Fasting trains the way we relate to consumption. Um, Service trains us in the way that we relate to our own energy and our own time. But what that implies is that training over time changes you training for an athlete makes them ready for the sport that they play. Um, I ran a marathon in 2010. I don't recommend it and I'm not going to do it again, but I did it the one time. And so that counts. Uh, But I just remember looking up a training plan and they were like these little tiny three mile runs. And I'm like, it's 26.2 miles. Why am I doing these tiny little, and it was all about building up to that place. And so our training, our training shows up in the way that we more or less naturally respond to the world around us. And sometimes to Tim's point, that can lead us to places of consolation where we really see growth, wisdom, and maturity. And sometimes that can lead us to places of desolation where the spirit points out, this is a place where you still are pretty raw and unformed. And that's a place that we're going to continue to work and grow. And so where that comes out is in our more or less natural responses. So, um, uh, you know, I've talked to with people who deal with anger and I've asked them how they've dealt with it. And they said, well, I try really hard not to be angry. And I said, how did that work out for you? And they said, well, it, it ticked me off, you know? So I'm like, okay, so you're in the loop now. You try not to be angry. You get angry. and That makes you angry and you just stay in there. Um, But it's not about trying harder when the emotion comes up. It's about learning how do you live without anger? How do you understand where anger comes from? Uh, It typically comes from the thwarting of your will. So, how do we learn to live without having to get our way all the time? Well, fasting is a good way of doing that. Sabbath is a good way of doing that. Silence and solitude are non productive. So, those are good ways to train ourselves to learn that so that when that moment comes up where we normally get angry, we find that it's just not there. And so where it show, where these things show up is in the everyday interactions that we have, and especially in the ones when we're kind of on autopilot, um, when we respond with words that we didn't expect to. I find that if I've spent extensive time in silence and solitude, I'm a lot slower to reply to people in one-on-one conversation part of that spiritual director thing too. But I, I tend to try and give it a beat before somebody asks a, a deep and good question and they've they've put themselves out in that vulnerable space. And, and I want to reward them, not reward them, but I want to return in kind and say, oh gosh, that's such a good question. I don't want to just pound out an answer for you. But it, when I've been in silence and solitude as a practice, I find that I'm not inclined to respond immediately. Like, I'm okay with that. Let's just let this silence sit here for a minute. Now, the funny thing is I do a lot of spiritual direction on Zoom, so I can't do too much of that because people think your internet connection dropped. So you kind of have to nod and like move your head so they know that you're still there. But uh, but yeah, that's where it shows up. It shows up in the very simple, very automatic ways that we interact in our everyday life. And that to me is where, that's where formation really shows up is people notice that. You become, the good news is no longer about where you may or may not go when you die. The good news then becomes about, gosh, I could be the kind of person who doesn't respond in anger to something that I normally responded in anger to. What would that be like? Uh, That becomes a very beautiful picture. That becomes very good news. And you don't even have to preach that. You just live that. And people will take an interest and in want to follow in that way. And, and I think that's G- what Jesus was up to, you know, inviting people to follow him, showing them what that life looked like, and then saying, if you need to leave, leave. But I, I don't know where you're going to find anything else like this. So feel free to go. But I have a feeling that you'll find your way back here.
3: Uh, yeah, that, that was uh, what very well said, Casey. I appreciate uh, I appreciate that reflection. Uh, there's a quote from the 14th century German mystic and theologian Meister Eckert that I have as an epigraph on one of my syllabi. Uh, It's the outer work can never be small if the inner work is great. And the outer work can never be great if the inner work is small. Um, So, you know, to me, that speaks to the the cultivation of that, what I uh, last week called phronesis or that practical wisdom, the, the, the practices that were a formation about which we have been uh, speaking, you know, classic spiritual disciplines like contemplative prayer or uh, corporate worship, uh, spiritual direction, or whether they're, they're more quotidian and everyday kinds of things, that, you know, the kinds of things that we do to, um, uh, to nurture our own spirits uh, in, in sort of the individuality and particularity of our own lives. Uh, is that they show up as they form this reflexive self, this self that is able to uh, enter into, in many of the ways that Casey just really described in a very lovely way, show up in a kind of reflexive uh, engagement with other persons, uh in discernment about what's going on in the world, in our communities, uh, in our politics, uh, in uh, the suffering of, of others. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's where it shows up. Uh, The whole history of, again, of Christian spirituality, especially the mystical traditions, um, you know, and, and the mystics became very popular again, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, among people who are seeking an experience, seeking an experience, well, the uh, one of the the things that we learn from people like the Desert Fathers who uh, and mothers that Casey has mentioned, and my, the Meister Eckerts and the Julian of Norwich's uh, of the of the uh, of our history is that the experience was never the point. Like the these ecstatic experiences were at the point that if, uh, if they were the result of uh, a gifting, perhaps, of the spirit. If you had been diligent in in your uh, practice, sometimes if you hadn't been diligent in your practice, um, they were a gift. But they always issued in you know, the, the genuineness of the experience was always judged by or evaluated by the transformation the, uh, that it it affected in the person. So you. You know, if if a mystical encounter or if the contemplative life was to be adjudged um, as as genuine, then it would show up in the life of, of the person um, as they engage the world. Uh, I, I think of some of the uh, you know the great early uh, theologians like uh, Saint Augustine or Gregory the Great who longed for nothing but the contemplative life. They thought that was the superior form of life. They wanted to withdraw into study and to prayer, but they were, uh, they were bishops, they were popes, they were called into leadership. They uh, knew that their responsibility was to steward communities, to engage those who were suffering, uh, to assuage that suffering, to respond to that uh, suffering and oppression in some way, and that that was what they were called into uh, out of those uh, that life of contemplation. That was what the life of contemplation formed them formed in them was this kind of uh, capacity to notice and to respond to human need, and that was that is uh, where the practices show up is as they compel us, propel us into engagement with uh, with the world.
1: So how can, like when we see people who are really active in the world that are in places where people are suffering or where they're loving their neighbors well or sacrificially and not out of a sense of martyrdom or, you know, those kind of things. When we see examples of people like that, um, how can the church? How can the church better equip more of us to live out of that inward maturity to to make a difference? I mean, we talked about our culture earlier, but like, how can the how can the church be more? I guess kind of what what scripture calls or compels us to To be in the world, how can we? How can the church encourage more of the inner work that will make a difference in the outer?
3: Hmm. Well, you know, in practical terms, and I've kind of been out of the practical world for a long time.
1: Uh, but how do you do it with your students, Tim? Like, I mean, you're in that yeah. same kind of shepherding.
3: Yeah. Just invite them into. So you know, the kind of stuff I do is invite people to. Uh, you know Howard Thurman, uh, the great 20th century African American spiritual writer and mystical figure, has been really influential in my life and, and work. And uh, he's got a place in his autobiography where he talks about he taught for a time uh, at Boston University School of Theology, uh, a course called Spiritual Resources and Disciplines. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds familiar, uh, and uh, he's got a place in his autobiography where he said. He wasn't sure you could really teach spirituality or spiritual disciplines, but somehow it could be caught. You know, caught not taught was his phrase. But he has this place where he says that he he understood his role as to orienting persons who were, you know, going into ministries of leadership, orienting them toward their own inner lives. So, from my perspective as as a theological educator, uh, my contribution to Toward you know the question you're asking. My contribution is to invite those who are preparing for ministries of leadership and faith communities to orient themselves toward their own inner life uh, lives. And part of how I do that is is to introduce them to this long history and and the diverse experiences and expressions of. Of Christian spiritual practice and formation that are in our history, to invite them to adopt or to try on uh, practices that, uh, about which they may not have been aware, ideas that they may have never encountered uh, that are actually embedded in, in this long tradition that, that we have. And to, you know, to begin to reflect upon how those practices or how those experiences feel Uh, You know, what happens in them uh, as they uh, work with those things and and then to imagine what it what it means to to be a leader in faith community who is informed by those uh, that the inner work that they've done. Uh, and, And part of that inner work includes wrestling with with the with their demons, you know, with their shadows um with those feelings of desolation that I, I noted earlier and discerning where those those are coming from and what they're trying to tell us. Uh, because it's only it by uh understand knowing uh what uh knowing ourselves, right? Knowing what's going on inside ourselves and how to regulate and to um uh and you know, to harness the the movements of the interior self that we have any capacity to engage the world generatively uh and to 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 do what you're you're asking Tina uh which is to create uh spaces experiences you know opportunities for people in faith communities to to do this kind of work on their own you you know you can't you can't lead somebody where you where you've not been, or at least have at least read the map, you know, uh, about how to get there. So,
1: Casey, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I I would echo.
2: I mean, Tim put that so eloquently. I I have a wish list of things that I think of for churches, especially. Um, I do think the one thing for for leaders, for point leaders, senior pastors, teaching pastors, lead pastors, uh, just orient your day around the engagement with an enjoyment of God. I think that that is such a primary point because to Tim's point, you can't take people and it won't, it, even if you try to, there will be a point at which it's no longer your lived experience. And then it becomes very transparent and people can see through it, that there isn't that kind of energy. I think for boards or eldership, um, Asking your your staff, the people under your care, the question, "How is your soul?" on a regular basis. Uh, celebrating when they take vacation time, or when they uh, take a time away in silence and solitude, making that something that you celebrate. Uh, I find that church cultures, if you celebrate something, it suddenly becomes very important, and uh, that's true of all cultures, but definitely with church cultures, I think that's part of it. Um, and then, and then honestly, so much of it is really about considering how we picture God and how we envision God. And if God is a God of justice, then there's the justice work we do within us that's really important, dealing with our demons and dealing with the shadow side. But as we deal with that it should become easier for us to see that in other places to see the darkness in other places and to see that the god who wants to work inwardly in us wants to work outwardly in others and we might be in a unique position at that point to be able to lean into that and that's where i i i don't know i don't want to be a heretic but i i, <laughs> I don't want to be a heretic but i'm going to say this anyway uh, I wonder how about the power of Jesus to address the needs of the people on the margins if he hadn't been the kind of presence that often withdrew to the places where no one else either wanted to be or the places where no one else would go and experienced God there before going to the margins. There was something about that 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 shaped him and, and it shaped his disciples. It, it shaped them into the kind of people who once you then go to marginalized places, you go to people who are suffering, you approach that with an entirely different presence. And so for churches, I, I think if you're, if you're going to do some sort of service project or mission trip or something like that, partner spiritual practices with that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to go to another country or yeah. culture, Fasting is a practice you should enter into. I remember I was going to lead a, a a pastors retreat in Nairobi, Kenya, and they wanted me to talk about spiritual practices. And so I talked with the missionary who was there, and I said, "Well, I'm, I'll probably leave fasting off the table because you know food insecurity is a is a big challenge in Africa." And he said, "Oh, please don't." He said, "Please talk about fasting." He said, "It is such a problem because it's imbalanced. It's a works based kind of thing." where people who are already food insecure are now trying to fast to show God how mm-hmm. faithful they are. Entering into another place with people who are suffering, spiritual practices should be part of our, our way of preparing for that as much as you know, studying up and getting shots and you know, planning as a team. Spiritual practices should be a key part of that because they prepare us to be the kind of people who know what to do more or less automatically when we encounter people who are suffering
1: really like how this conversation has shifted or it has highlighted what we value and maybe what we undervalue. And so I, I really appreciate how thoughtful, um, this time has been. And, um, I would love to like do more with you guys where we just talk about like the practical things that, that can move us as individuals and as a community to engage the world in a more powerful way. Um, thank you so much for the work that you do and, um, equipping, empowering, um, whether it's at the academic level and the, at the church setting, I, I feel super hopeful after this conversation, seeing how, how qualified and how um, available. There are people like you all that are doing this work and helping us find our way as we go forward. So I hope our listeners have enjoyed this as much as I have and uh, I know that Kevin's going to be listening to this and wishing he had been able to be part of the conversation. Um, you know, I, I also appreciate that Tim and Casey come from very different parts of our of our movement. And yet the conversation has been so rich. And so that's one of the goals of Common Grounds Unity is to try to just come together in conversation so that we can learn from one another, um, that that we can build unity through friendship and, and relationships. And the phrase for Common Grounds Unity is uh, unity starts with a cup of coffee. And so I'm going to lighten up our conversation as we go out and ask you guys if we were to be having this conversation at around a table, and and you all were gonna order some coffee. How would you drink your coffee, hmm. or or do you not drink coffee because it doesn't really taste good? It only smells good. That's my theory. <laughs> I
2: will I will complicate this tremendously. So if it's if it's first thing in the morning, I would love a good Ethiopian ground pour over, straight black. Uh, but if I've already had my coffee at home, I would probably go with a uh, chai latte with almond milk. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it, so I'm giving you two because, you know, it just don't know what time we're going to meet. You know, we got to work out the details, all that stuff. So,
3: <laughs> uh, just pour me a, a, cup of, uh, Pete's dark roast, French roast, uh, touch of, uh, cream, uh, half, half and half, uh, in it. And, uh, stronger the better
1: (laughs) all right well you caffeinated folks uh i will be uh toasting you with my coke zero and um yeah and i really am excited for this conversation for our listeners to be able to to continue this journey with us on spiritual formation so join us on our next episode and we will see you there thanks so much
0: Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.